Hello and welcome to The Case Files. I'm Kate Jabot and over the course of this podcast series, we'll be bringing you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. In this episode, we're going to be hearing a really emotional story, one which you may find upsetting, but it's an important story that needs to be heard as it's changed the way a hospital works and secured better chances for many, many children. Today, we'll find a mother being ignored by medical staff with tragic consequences for her child. Mothers know best. Mothers, we know our babies. I know the difference between when he cries for milk and when he's in pain. I know, and that day he was crying because there was so much in pain. We'll investigate how a hospital missed the signs of a deadly disease, meningitis. Right through the healthcare delivery system, we do see misdiagnosis from general practitioners, ambulance staff, casualty officers. And we'll ask whether, after a finding of neglect in a case of national importance, we might see changes in medical practice. For the hospital itself, they have rolled out training for all the clinicians, changed their protocols to make sure that this never happens again. Meningitis is a disease which can affect anyone at any age. The speed at which it can develop is frightening. But this edition of The Case File starts long before that, with that life-defining moment, that swirl of emotions, when you discover that you're going to have a child. One day, I just uh, missed my period, and then I found that I'm pregnant. So I was like, over the moon, me and my husband, I was in shock. I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything, just like, you know, just crying. It was nice. The moment was even more heightened for Muna as she'd been trying for a baby for over a decade, but it kept miscarrying. Yeah, we were trying for 11 years and then I've lost, yeah, about four or five, yeah, miscarriages. I don't know why. I never knew why, why I've lost them just like that. I mean, I don't know why. The feeling that I thought that I'm pregnant, can't describe. Our journey with Muna Abarizik starts in the Middle East, in Jordan with Muna and her husband in a rush of excitement, buying things in anticipation of their baby arriving after an 11-year wait. I was like, I don't know what to get for him. I was like, yeah, I was so, so excited. But halfway through the pregnancy, Muna realises things need to change. She wants to return to the UK to be near her sister and begin afresh. I said to my husband, I said, listen, it's not going to work in Jordan. I need to go back to the UK, you know, start a new life. When she arrived in Manchester, she met the sister who she hadn't seen for years. It was quite a reunion, especially when she realised all the girls in her sister's family would soon be joined by a baby boy. She was dead excited. I didn't see her for seven, eight years. Even the kids, her kids, you know, having a baby, you know, baby boy, and, you know, they start, you know, shopping with us and my sister. Go buy loads of clothes for him and, yeah, it was good. It was really, really good. I mean, my two brothers has got two girls. The other one's got two girls. My sister's got two girls as well. But his was the first boy in the family. Yeah. There are a lot of things to weigh on your mind as the day of a birth approaches. 
One is how you might bond with your child after it's born. You know things are going to be difficult, but with that connection, that love, things can be so much easier. Muna had had a decade waiting for this and all those miscarriages. So when Muna's baby finally arrived, it was a huge moment. It was healthy, healthy baby. The only time he cried is when he's umbra. Seriously. And that close bond, that understanding was there. When I, when I get up in the morning, just smile at you. The first thing you see is a smile. Like, pick me up. What are you doing, mummy? Come on, pick me up. And I used to love it when we, me and him, you know, get up in the morning, you know, clean the house and then I give him a wash or a shower or whatever and get him dressed. And then put him in bounce a chair and put music for him and oh, it, was, it was good. Muna called her baby Mohammed, a decision the parents made together. Her husband was still working overseas. My husband, he said to me, what do you call him? I said, well, I don't know, to be honest. I said, well, can I call him Mohammed after my dad? I said, yeah, of course, that would be nice. I think that's the right name for him. It's very manly, I think. <laughs> Mohammed is just, just him. It was a Monday morning when Muna got Mohammed up and dressed and walked with her sister and her kids to school. It was early September, Mohammed's first time on the school run. With the school's back, the house was quiet and calm when Muna and Mohammed returned home. She played with him for a bit and then put on the TV while she got on with sorting out the house. It was fine, we were playing. I put him in the bed and just put like Arabic movie for him and he's got belly dancers and he was watching, you know, every move. So well excited, you know. He was laughing and making them noises. Yeah, you know what I mean? Anyway, so um, I took him downstairs because I started cooking for the girls because that's what they used to do. Everything was good. Mohammed was his normal happy self. My sister came back. She, she picked him up. She gave him his milk. And then, a few minutes, he started crying. He vomits a small bit. I said to Fatima, oh, is he all right? She said, yeah, yeah, but I'm going to take him upstairs. I'm going to change him, because I'm, I'm used to be, like, if he dribbled, I'd go upstairs and change him and wash him. I'm, I'm that kind of mum. So I went upstairs. He's not vomited, he's not gushing out. He's worse than that. It's like, I don't know what to call it. He's like, I felt that his stomach was going to come out of his mouth because he was vomiting that bad. And he had a temperature on him and his skin colour changed. And I said, family, listen, he's not right. She said to me, just calm down. Fine, it's fine. I'm with him, it's fine. And and I couldn't, I couldn't even hold him cause I, because I was so nervous. Because I've never seen him like that. Muna and her sister tried to calm her son, but Mohammed was really not looking well. She, she changed his nap here. She put Mohammed next to her and he's crying on a stop. But his crying to me is like crying in pain. He was in pain. I know my son when he cries, when he's, when he's hungry, when he want to change or when he, you know what I mean? But this type of cry was different cry. I said, Fama, I'm not settling. Muna decided to call 111. For 111, they start asking her questions. You know, put Mohammed on in his back, um, and he had the blue lips, and he had the temperature. And um, and they said, uh, we're going to call the ambulance. 
As the ambulance made its way to them, Muna packed a bag in case they needed to go to hospital. Nappies, extra milk, Mohammed's red book detailing all his medical treatment since birth. That was something Muna, a cautious, thoughtful mother, always carried with her. She packed and waited, but there was no sign of the ambulance. Muna was worried. And uh, to me, I felt like I was waiting for hours and hours and hours. But finally it turned up and then it was um, two guys. So they came in and they started doing checks on Mohammed's ops and stuff. And they said, uh, we need to take him down to hospital. So I said, OK. So uh, me and Mohammed, one in the back. It was a short journey, just 15 minutes or so from her house in Hyde to the local A&E at Tameside Hospital. But that can feel a long time in an ambulance when you're caring for your sick child. Eventually, they arrived at the hospital. We waited in the, in the room uh, just to be seen by the nurse. But then Mohammed, he was boiling hot. He was up. You couldn't touch him because he's so hot. I went to the paramedic. I said, listen, he's so hot. I said, just take his clothes off. I, I took Mohammed's clothes off and then I went outside and I was waiting, waiting, waiting see by the nurse and then they called Mohammed so we went to see the nurse all she did is uh, she's checked his ops um, and then she sent us to the um, cubicle and she said just wait for the doctor you know to see him by the doctors and um, opposite to me there's a lady and she starts saying oh what's wrong what the hell is wrong with that baby I said I'm so, I'm so sorry I know but I can't I can't I can't I don't know what to do I'm trying to calm him down but he's not having it the doctor came to Mohammed and asked me what happened and and asked me about Mohammed's um, background and and then he said uh, we need to do a few tests. I said okay, well, what kind? He said blood tests. All right. Then I kept saying to the doctor, he's not right. He's not breathing right. His colour. Muna felt the doctors should know best, but she knew her baby and nobody else seemed as concerned about her son. Because I've got no idea what's happening. I'm, I'm so nervous. I'm scared. So they said my baby was dark. Dark is because he's black or dark colour. But I know my baby. I know his, his skin colour when it's changed. I know when he's got little blue lips. I know, I know that. But they, did not, they didn't listen to me. So anyway, when the, when the nurse come up, she said, we need to take her some blood. She couldn't take any blood because she said to me, he's got a freezing cold, he's got a freezing cold feet, so we can't take any blood. Blood is not coming out. So she said to me, try to put the um, his blanket around his feet and warm them for us, and we come back in five minutes. So I said, all right, so I've done what she asked me to do, and then she came back, and then she managed to get a few, not a lot of blood, but she, she managed to take some blood out. Then she said to me, we're going to just wait on the results to come back. And then she came to me and she said, um, we've got the results back and he's fine and, and um, he's got like a, a virus. I said, what kind of virus? She said, he's got a, a cold virus, like a normal cold virus. I said to her, listen, I said, I'm not a doctor or anything like that. And, I said, but my son's not breathing. He's not breathing properly. I promise he's not breathing properly. Is his chest all right? His back is all right? Because I know, and I kept saying sorry to her. I kept saying sorry to her because I kept, I kept asking her questions. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And she said, uh, if you're happy, we're going to send him home. 
I said, not really, no. I don't want to go home because I know he's not right. Because she said to me, because we can't send him to the baby ward. Because it's, it's, she said to me, it's full of viruses. So we don't want him to get any worse. I said to her, I said, okay, so what are you going to do? I said, well, are you going to observe him for two hours? to make sure he's fine. They put us in the room. They put Mohammed in a, in a, like in a bed. When we first arrived upstairs, she came to the room and she checked his ops and she left and none of them, in them two hours, none of them, they came to check on Mohammed. As Muna waited for two long hours, Mohammed's condition didn't improve. She grew more anxious. Mohammed, he was lying in the bed there, he's not moving, so I thought, is something wrong? Is something wrong? Usually Mohammed is very active, he's, you know, he, he plays with you, he's, he's, you know, he's even looking, you know, I don't know, I know, I know, I know Mohammed wasn't right that day. So I went outside to just to look for someone, but I couldn't see no one, so I went back in. And then after two hours, there's a nurse, not a doctor, not the same doctor she sent me upstairs, the nurse and she gave me this charge note and she said to me um he's fine she didn't even check his temperature she said to me he's fine and she gave me like a number if he's gone any worse just give us a call back i said all right then is he is he fine is he fine? she said he's fine everything fine muna didn't want to leave all her instincts were telling her there was something very wrong with her child she called her sister I found my sister, I said, listen, Fatima, I feel bad about that. She said, what do you mean? I said, listen, Fatima, I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not leaving. I said, but I, f- I think if I stay, they will call security. And me. She said to me, listen, Muna, you can't argue with the doctors. If they said this, he's fine. So he's fine. So anyway, she said to me, I'm going to order a taxi for you. I get Mohammed's dressed and bought his blanket because it was raining that day. And I got all this stuff and um, we went outside waiting for taxi about 20 minutes and then we arrived Fatima is about one o'clock and I said Fatima I said listen Fatima I said yeah she said I said to her Fatima I said I'm not lying but my is not right she said what do you mean I said look at him anyway I said I said listen maybe it's me being over 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 protectors and all that so anyway we went upstairs and Mohammed Mohammed he won't stop crying he was in pain he was in pain Anyway, and I start, I start reading Quran on him. I start, you know, we're trying to calm him down. He's not having it because Fatma, she slept with the girls in the other room just to give me space with him. But he won't, he won't, won't stop crying. So anyway, I was holding his hand and I just, you know, I was like, start kissing his hand. And then I noticed something. It's like, um, it's like a blood. And then what, what's that? And I saw two there. And then next minute, I saw one in his forehead. I said, what is it? The rash that Muna had discovered on Mohammed was a sign of something really serious, meningitis. I ran to a sister. She knew. She knew straight away. I said, I ran to her, I said, Father, come here, come here. Mohammed's got blood. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't know. He's got blood in his hand. He's got blood in his head. Is in forehead. I said, oh, look, look. And she said, oh my God. I said, what is it, Fama? What is it? Tell me, what is it? She said, just call 111 now. Call 111. She took Mohammed downstairs to the living room and uh, she phoned 111 and she, she, she told him all the symptoms. He's got a temperature, gone very pale. 
his lips were blue. And uh, they said, just put the phone down. I don't know if they called 999 or the ambulance, or I don't know what happened there. I was waiting outside, you know, just like the ambulance, just, I was waiting outside the door. My sister was holding Hamid. And then two paramedics, they've, they've done all the, his ops. And then they said, uh, can you get me a glass? So, because I was stood near the kitchen door, because I was, I, was, I was hysterical, I was crying, crying, crying. So they asked me to get a glass. So, uh, so I got a glass for them and they, they've done a test on him. My sister, she's saying, oh, did you see that spot? Did you see that? Did you see that? I said, no. I said to him, listen, he's got he's got blue lips. It was, it's like, he was ignoring me. He was really ignoring me, that guy. He asked my sister if she's mother. I said, no, she's mother. And then uh, he said, did she speak English? I said to him, I just told her that he's got blue lips. So I think I do speak English. So I said, just please, just can you, can you hurry up and just take him to the hospital? So he said, he said to my sister, oh, I think she's been a bit dramatic. He said, do you think if he was like emergency, I would be out there the door? But for him, he didn't see it as emergency. So he took his time. He would took his time. He would took his time. After what seemed like forever, the paramedics decided to take Mohammed to hospital for checks. But instead of going straight away, they were carrying out yet more checks and asking Muna yet more questions. I put Mohammed in my chest. And he was, he, just, he was cold as a cucumber. I was begging him to go to the hospital. I was begging him, begging him and begging him. And he was asking me questions, said, please, can you just ask me the questions when we in the hospital? I said, no, that's like a procedure we have to do. We have to go all over. We have to do it. He said, where are you from? Are you black African? Are you this? Are you that? Are you? I said, listen, I'm from Middle East. I was looking at Mohammed. I saw a brush covering his neck. That girl, I said to her, listen, look, look, can you see that? Can you see that? And I, and I pulled his, his thumbs down, it's like, can you see that? And she said, oh my God. And she looked and looked at the guy. He didn't say a word. He totally ignored me. And uh, he took his time outside the house. Even my sister, she said, what are you doing outside? I said, I don't know if I'm always doing paperwork. Finally, they drove to the hospital in the ambulance. They were met by one of the nurses who'd seen them just a few hours before. She said, oh my God, she said, what are you doing, are you back? Are you back? I said, yeah. I said, look at him, look at him. So I showed her, and she said, she said, oh my God. She took my habit from there. One of the doctors, he tried to, uh, he was giving Mohammed antibiotics. I was holding Mohammed near the bed, I was holding Mohammed's hand. I was, was doing my prayers for him. And then, for a minute, Mohammed is giving his antibiotics. I think he, he came around, he was, he was looking at me, Mohammed. He gave me that look, he was as if he saying, Mommy, I'm going, just let me go, Mommy, just let me go. <laughs> and that's it, and then he closes his eyes for your mother for God. 
and I had to move because all the doctors they go around him. He started getting worse and worse. So one of the nurses said to me, "Come here." And she said to me, "Watch the doctors. How they're working hard on your son." And I looked at her. I said, "Really? Now they're working hard on my son." The medical staff attempted CPR on Mohammed, but it was too late. And I said, please, just try for another two, three minutes on it. Just, just, just keep trying, just keep trying. And he said, just, it's, it's gone, it's dead. I said, please don't say that, just please try another one more time. <laughs> and then, and then, he passed away about seven, seven o'clock in the morning. That pain, even right now, that pain, I would never get rid of it's, it's there till I die. It was so good. It was so beautiful. Mohammed passed away on the 11th of September, aged just three months. He died of meningitis and sepsis just hours after Muna had begged hospital staff not to discharge Mohammed. She had recognised how ill her child was. The hospital had not. Meningitis can progress devastatingly quickly. It's an inflammation of the protective fluid and membrane surrounding your brain and spinal cord and can be caused by bacteria or a virus. It can affect anyone at any age but young people aged 15 to 19 are at higher risk and children younger than four are the most likely to contract it. I spoke to Steve Damon, founder of Meningitis Now, a charity which campaigns to raise awareness of this disease. It's a constant battle keeping meningitis a disease of national importance because we do have some vaccines now and parents, um, you know, they're... They're misinformed sometimes. They believe that they, they, their child is, is um, protected against all strains of meningitis. Yes, we do have vaccines, but they don't protect against all strains. And that's the thing to remember, that um, no one is 100% protected against some um, really lethal strains of bacterial meningitis. As well as supporting others who face meningitis, Steve has personal experience of how deadly it can be. Well, we lost our little boy, Spencer. He was 14 months old in November 1982 and there wasn't any charities in those days to represent the disease there wasn't any helplines no leaflets so family and friends we decided to um to start fundraising hopefully fund some research into the disease you know meningitis now has been going 34 years almost 13 million pounds worth of research we financially supported over 3,000 families with um counseling uh grants to help with funerals and, and um, training for parents and children. We have a big uh, Believe and Achieve programme for 15 to 24-year-olds who have uh, experienced meningitis. We organise away days and things like that for them to, so they can associate themselves with people that have um, been through a similar experience. And what do you want people to understand about it? What are the key points that everyone should know about this illness? Well, bacterial meningitis is, is a very dangerous disease and it's really important so everyone is aware of the symptoms that are associated with the disease because we 
do know that the earlier the disease can be identified and prompt hospital treatment can be provided, then the patient will have a far better chance of survival. With meningococcal disease, which is the most common form of bacterial meningitis, it causes two distinct forms of disease, meningitis and septicemia. With meningitis, it's very often a headache, dislike of light, uh, sickness. With meningococcal septicemia, it would be aching limbs, cold hands and feet, very cold hands and feet, you know, a very sick patient. And very often a rash that starts like little pinprick marks and rapidly develops into big purple bruises. But we do always say that don't wait for a rash because sometimes it can be a late symptom and in some cases it doesn't appear at all. But in most cases, especially with little toddlers, you know, you will notice a, a rapid deterioration in their condition very, very early on. They can't tell you that, that they're ill, but they, when you try to comfort them, they will ache because their little bodies will be aching all over. When when there was a big uh, publicity campaign about spotting meningitis, the, the very famous thing was the, the, the glass test, the rolling on the skin. Um, how important is that? Or are there other early signs that you should look out for? And how do you do it if you've got dark skin? The rash is probably the only specific symptom there is associated with the meningococcal septicemia. And in most cases, you do get a rash. So if you apply a tumbler, say from the bathroom or from the kitchen cupboard and roll it over the skin because most rashes will fade under pressure. The rash associated with meningococcal septicemia will stay prominent and not fade. And even with dark skin, if you press the skin hard enough, you may be able to detect the rash. And under the eyelids and in the lips, things like that. But the rash isn't always present and sometimes it can be a late symptom. You will notice in most cases a rapid deterioration in, in someone's condition, whether it's a, you know, an 18-year-old lad that plays rugby three or four times a week and can completely be overwhelmed by the disease within a matter of hours with a headache, stiff neck, dislike of light, aching limbs, cold hands and feet, sickness, diarrhoea. With older people, sometimes when they, you know, they've been flaked out in the chair and they, and they realise they need to go to the toilet, as soon as they stand up, they can't take their weight and they collapse. And that's especially with um, university students. We hear a lot from parents that they just weren't able to stand their own weight. The thing is, if you suspect meningitis, then say so and be persistent. And tragically, Muda did all that. And it, sadly, it still wasn't enough to save um, Mohammed's life. After Mohammed's death, Muna continued to blame herself. It was a terrible burden. She wished she'd done more, been more persistent. But having heard her story, the things she had said to the medical staff, it's hard to think what else she could have done. I should have stuck my ground. I wasn't thinking, that, I, was only, I wasn't even thinking that day because I was so scared for him. You, you're a nurse, you're a doctor, you, you should, you're there to save lives, not just, you know, to stand there and... And I'll tell you what, and I said that I'm going to call, and I'll say it again, he was racist with me, that second paramedic, he was a racist. The tragedy of Mohammed's death was incredibly hard to deal with for Muna. She felt badly let down by the medical profession. When a coroner's inquest was held into Mohammed's death, Muna's family were represented by Victoria Beale, a clinical negligence specialist at Slater & Gordon, she told me what unfolded at South Manchester Coroner's Court 
the series of medical mistakes that came to light. It's a truly awful story, what happened on the evening when Mohammed became ill. The ambulance took him to hospital where he was seen initially in A&E by the triage nurse. She was also concerned about him and took him straight through to the resuscitation area of accident and emergency to be seen immediately. But what she didn't do was she didn't put a sepsis sticker on, on his notes when she took him through to the resus area um, and that later proved to be a fatal mistake for Mohammed. He was taken through to resus where he was seen by the two nurses in that area. He was then seen by a doctor in accident and emergency, an adult doctor, who called down a paediatric registrar from the wards. The paediatric registrar then came down, saw Mohammed. She thought that Mohammed had bronchiolitis, so effectively thought he had a high heart rate and a fever because of a chest infection. So she decided that Mohammed was fit to be discharged home. Muna was understandably very concerned. This was her son. She thought that he was very ill and not like himself at all. She expressed these concerns to the registrar, who then agreed that Mohammed could stay in for a little while to be monitored. Sadly, not all of the previous clinical picture was transmitted. And so Mohammed appeared to fall asleep and to calm down. The decision was made that he should be discharged. Muna was very concerned. She thought that he was still very ill, but she didn't feel able to insist that they kept him in, so he was sent home. Sadly, Mohammed was failed by six clinicians through his journey. None of them put him on the sepsis pathway, despite the hospital's own protocol saying that his observations at the time met the criteria and he should have been put on the sepsis pathway. Can you just explain a little bit more about the sepsis sticker that should have been put on Mohammed's file and what that would have done? In accident and emergency, when a child is seen by the triage nurse, that triage nurse takes an initial set of observations. They take the heart rate, they check the capillary refill, the temperature oxygen saturations and it's those observations which indicate whether or not a child should be put on the sepsis pathway because they are all indicators of infection or of severe infection and so the triage nurse is the first person that sees a patient as they come in through A&E they take those observations and then they judge the observations against the protocol and decide whether or not the sepsis sticker is needed. And then once that sepsis sticker is on the notes, those notes follow that patient and every clinician that picks it up will think sepsis first. But sadly, that didn't happen here. The nurse in triage said at the inquest that she was concerned about Mohammed and wanted to get him straight through to resource and didn't finish up his notes before she took him through. In relation to the rest of the clinicians, they simply failed to look at the history of his observations in, in the records. If you're placed on the sepsis pathway, you should be given fluids and antibiotics within an hour of admission. And fluids and antibiotics are the first line of treatment for sepsis, whether or not that be um, meningococcal sepsis or, or any other type. During the inquest, Muna had provided photos of Mohammed. She'd been struck that her baby's skin colour was a factor in failing to spot the signs of septicemia. 
and I had pictures in the court just to show the jurors that's my son. You could see his veins on his head. I know it's not white, but it's like half cast. You, 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 could, you could see his veins. Even the judge said to them, you have to pay more and more attention if it's dark baby. You have to be more extra careful with the dark babies. Paramedic said, even the doctors, she said, uh, his skin colour, he was fine. She said, how do you know that? A lot of the clinicians wrote in the medical records that Mohammed didn't appear pale. And the coroner said that they had no idea whether or not Mohammed was pale or not because they'd never met him before. And Muna was saying consistently, he doesn't look right, he doesn't look his normal self, and they should have listened to Mum. Because I know he wasn't right. His skin colour changed. It was clear that Muna had not been listened to. And there were further errors made later that night when the second ambulance had been called. The ambulance arrived. The paramedics came into the house to see Mohammed. They failed to understand how ill Mohammed was. Those paramedics spent 38 minutes on the scene assessing Mohammed before they took him to hospital. By the time they took him to hospital and he was seen, he was at that point in shock and was a very, very ill baby. And Mohammed died in the early hours of that morning with his mum there um, holding his hand. Steve Damon spends his time supporting those who face meningitis and septicemia. I asked what goes through his mind when he hears of tragic cases like Mohammed's. Well, you know, with, with Muna's little boy, you know, it's a story we hear all too often. I know it's a very difficult disease to diagnose for health professionals, but quite often when there's been a fatality, somewhere in the healthcare delivery system, there's been a misdiagnosis or delay. And that's proved to be to be catastrophic. What do you say to a parent so that they can be really quite confident in their own intuition about their child? Parents know, know their child best. And most of us don't seek medical help unless we're really concerned. That should be the first red flag for a health professional. And, you know, in some cases, just keep them in a bit longer for observation because the disease does you know, rapidly grow, you know, from one bug getting into the bloodstream, multiplying to millions. And that's why in most cases, you do see a rapid deterioration in their condition. But of course, when children are sent away from hospital, the parent is in a false sense of security because they've been told by a health professional that it's not serious and take carpool. When they do deteriorate more, it's that time when you think, well, the doctor said it wasn't serious, let's just leave it a little bit. And then by the time everyone realises something is seriously wrong, it's very often too late to save that life. Because quite often when, when an Ill, a serious illness has been missed, the impression is that the parent needed to be more forceful and really insist. But Muna really did insist and she pleaded. Where does the balance lie between the, the health professionals taking parents more seriously or the parents being more forceful? Well, I think it depends on the, the health professional Right through the healthcare delivery system, we do see mis misdiagnosis from general practitioners, ambulance staff, casualty officers. I think in most cases, if you can get over all those hurdles and get to the consultant paediatrician where a child is concerned, in most big city hospitals, they do consider that it could be meningitis and maybe start some treatment. 
You're listening to The Case Files, the podcast which brings you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. The finding that the inquest reached in the case of the death of Mohammed was rare and serious. The coroner found that Mohammed died of natural causes contributed to by neglect rather than negligence. It's a really tragic case when you hear the details and the inquest finding was of neglect. It's quite rare. A finding of neglect, you're quite right, is is rare in an inquest. It doesn't mean the same as negligence in a civil sense. It means that there has been a gross failure to provide basic medical care and Muna and her family felt quite vindicated at the inquest that that finding had been made by the jury because they thought that throughout the events of that evening that there had been a, a failure to provide Mohammed with the basic care that he so desperately needed to save his life. Could Mohammed's life have been saved? Absolutely, and that's one of the saddest features of, of this story of what happened to Mohammed. We heard from the expert at the inquest that if, if he had been put on the sepsis protocol during his initial admission to hospital that evening, that he would have survived. A dreadful thing to hear for any parent. But by following the legal route, Muna has secured better chances for everyone using Tameside Hospital. The inquest led to the trust which runs the hospital implementing a number of changes, all of which were endorsed by the coroner. So from now on, crucially, a sepsis assessment must form part of the triage process for every child who attends the emergency department. And a sepsis sticker will be used in that process. This alone could save lives. And for babies in Mohammed's position, there are also four-hour periods of observation required and particular sets of measurements which must be taken. These are alongside many other changes in policy and ways in which information is communicated to medical teams. Added together, these make up a significant change of direction for the hospital, which should secure a better future for babies like Mohammed and their parents. And the coroner said the issues raised in this case are far-reaching consequences, a matter of national importance. Um, what are those consequences? The consequences of very sick babies not being recognised as needing immediate treatment is that very sadly they're sent home and they are they are not treated and, and that results in the loss of their life. One of the recommendations that the coroner made was for better training for paramedics because despite the 111 operator who had taken the call noticing Mohammed's high-pitched cry and recognising that as being the sign of a seriously ill child, when the paramedics arrived on scene, they didn't recognise how ill Mohammed was. And this was less than an hour before he went into total shock. Um, and so the coroner recommended that there be better training for paramedics on recognising ill infants. I think certainly for the hospital itself, they have rolled out um, training for all the clinicians, changed their protocols to make sure that clinicians are, are looking at the pattern rather than just the set of observations that have just been taken to make sure that this never happens again. And so I think for the hospital and for the, and for the clinicians involved, it really will affect positively the way that they act in the future. And what's changed? What kind of procedures have been put in place to make sure this kind of thing practically cannot happen again? 
The Health Safety Investigation Branch, HSIB, which is a national organisation, have studied Mohammed's case. They look at a issue which is um, wide-ranging and which has occurred in a, in a number of hospitals to see whether or not they can make national recommendations for change. And they looked at Mohammed's case in the context of recognising seriously ill infants because it's known to be a problem. And HSIB will produce a, a national report making recommendations on changes. And so hopefully Mohammed's family's involvement in that and all the other families that will have contributed towards that national investigation and that national report, we will see some change from that. In, in hindsight, you, you often see these situations and think, the parent must think, if only I challenged, if only I pushed harder. How difficult is that in reality? And do parents, you know, with the whole aura around the medical community, how difficult do parents find to actually challenge their authority? I think it's understandable that parents do find that difficult. One thing that I think is important to remember is if parents have been through this already, they should remember that it's not their fault that medics made certain decisions and parents should never feel that they've done something wrong if they have trusted what the doctors said. But if you want to challenge a doctor, you don't have to do it in a confrontational way. You can just ask lots of questions. Could there be any other causes? Could my child be suffering from something more serious? You can ask them what signs and symptoms to look out for, for when you should return to hospital. So you don't go home and then see a deterioration in your child, but feel like you can't go back. If you ask more questions, then you're prompting the doctor to think about it again as well. Muna hopes other parents can take confidence from hearing her story and the result of the inquest. Trust your instincts and, and just go for it and do, don't give up and just... Because mothers know best. Mothers, we know our babies. I'm not waiting for a doctor or a nurse to tell me about my baby. I know my baby. I know the difference between when he cries for milk and when he's in pain. I know. And that day he was crying because there was so much in pain. <laughs> But they let me down, hospital. I would never ever forgive them. Every single one of them. I don't want any mother in the world to go through that pain because it's horrible pain. It's horrible pain. I can't even describe it. It's like, it was the worst pain ever. It was part of me. It was my baby. I waited for her for so long time. And when I had him, I thought, oh, my God. He gave me pure love, that boy. Oh, my God, that is the best three months in my life I had with him. Nothing can bring Muna's child back. But I did wonder whether she got what she wanted from the legal process. Got justice. I, I, I got what I wanted, justice. But now, hopefully, they will change. So that's why the judge sent me, well, last month, a letters to say this is a few changes going to be made. And I had a letter from um, health secretary. I had a letter from him. He said, uh, he said, so sorry for your loss. And he uh, apologised and he said, we're going to change a lot of things around the UK. Since this time, Muna has had some wonderful news. She found out she was pregnant again. Her child was delivered safely, and both mother and baby are doing well. 
Thanks again to Victoria Beale, medical negligence lawyer at Slater and Gordon, and Steve Damon from Meningitis Now for sharing their experience of this case. And thanks especially to Muna Abarizik for telling the story of her son, Mohammed. If you want to know more about this or other episodes of The Case Files, have a look at the website slatergordon.co.uk forward slash podcast or head over to our social media channels and search hashtag casefilespod and join the conversation. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.